In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So there's this urban legend swirling around about how to successfully introduce new ideas to me about the youth ministry. It all started a few years ago when I was introducing parents to a new curriculum that I planned to use with the students. And I was so proud of this discovery. But after the meeting, Mary Gonzalez, my counterpart over at Church of the Savior, approached me to let me know that she was excited about the curriculum too. In fact, she had been excited about the curriculum ever since she had discovered it and suggested it to me months before when I had completely ignored her suggestion and discovered it on my own. Ever since, apparently, the standard method for bringing new things up is to convince me that your idea is actually my idea, and then I'll be all on board. And I'll admit it, I like my ideas. My opinions are strong, and I form them pretty quickly. In fact, almost immediately. I'm not bragging, this isn't a virtue, but I would expect that I'm not alone in this, that many of us, once we have an idea, we're kind of committed to it. And this morning, I want us to have in mind this tendency we all have to assume that not only do we know what is best, but that we also know the best way for the best good to happen. It's that assumption that I want to have in mind while I give the context of our Old Testament reading this morning. We read from 1 Kings 19, but in 1 Kings 18, Elijah had his famous contest on the top of Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, where fire had come down from heaven to light his sopping sacrifice on fire, vindicating him and proving Yahweh to be superior to Baal. He then executes the prophets of Baal, and he had hoped that this would be the end of idolatry in Israel. The king, Ahab, seems to be convinced, but his wife, Jezebel, is not. And so, instead of returning home in victory, Elijah finds himself running for his life. Now, God miraculously feeds him and sends him on a 40-day trek, and at the end of which, he's here on top of this mountain in the reading we heard this morning. And Elijah is discouraged. Here he was, following the will of God, coming out of a victory, but finding himself in mortal danger. Somewhat similarly in our gospel reading, I don't know what was going through Peter's mind in the moments he was sinking, those brief moments, but it can't have been great to follow this call out into the water and then find yourself plunging beneath the waves. And discouragement is frequent in scripture. The Psalms and prophets are littered with language of disbelief. Where is God? Why is he not acting? Why has he not vindicated me? Or maybe using the words of Job, why did I not die at birth? Now, if pressed, any of us might say that God has his own will to do whatever he pleases, and it's not any of our business to tell him what to do. But knowing that fact to be true won't get rid of the sense of abandonment we feel when everything seems to be falling apart at the seams, and we aren't sure how God can possibly be in control. And this morning, I'm discouraged. I'm discouraged that there are people waiting in lines to sort through trash at a Venezuelan bakery so that they might find food. Headlines about the situation reading, some poor Venezuelan parents give away children amid deep crisis. I'm discouraged that while we pray every single week for wisdom for those in leadership, that they might govern well, it feels like wisdom is anywhere but in the halls of government. I'm discouraged that evangelical leaders are justifying the use of nuclear weapons, as if the rationale for that kind of wanton destruction of civilian life has any place in the theology of Christ's church. Most of all, I'm discouraged at scenes of white nationalist gatherings, of Nazi flags and outstretched armed salutes given around a statue honoring the most successful general of the Confederate States of America, a nation 
nation in quotes, whose cornerstone was, according to its vice president, Alexander Stevens, the cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based on this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth, the cornerstone for the nation upon which Robert E. Lee fought. That's the park that they were marching in. I'm discouraged that among those who were gathered marching were statistically almost certainly people who claim just like we do, that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. I should be clear, I don't care about being on the wrong side of history, whatever that means. History is written by historians who will weave whatever narrative they want about what has happened in the past. <laughs> Doing a master's in history convinced me that history is all stories written using facts and picking and choosing what you want. I'm concerned for the church to be on the wrong side of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's happened before. The church was on the wrong side of the gospel when some of her body argued for slavery in the 19th century. It opposed the gospel when the German church allowed a slow progression towards nationalism at the beginning of the 20th century, the consequence of which was either a tacit allowance, if not an endorsement, of the Third Reich. Now, I know I've brought up Hitler's Germany, and so I've instantly lost any arguments, but this is kind of a thing that we should be concerned about. You read the stories of the pastors and theologians who lived at that time, and you don't see the presentation of evil and its full acceptance. You see a very slow erosion of truth. I'm terrified that our grandchildren will look back at days like yesterday and wonder how we allowed the church to veer so far. I was warned in Bible college that the church was under attack from an eroding belief in objective truth and morality. The scare thing was postmodernism. It was going to come to get us and convince us all that everything can be true. But right now it seems to me that the church, at least in America, has been under attack by a lust for power that doesn't care who gets in its way. Because some of the very leaders who warned of deteriorating morality just 15 years ago seem to have had no problem overlooking a great deal of it in the last 18 months, as long as they could continue to have, quote, a seat at the table, unquote. But to take that pointed finger and turn it back on ourselves, what do we do when our own hypocrisy and inaction condemns us? When we have found it easy to speak out from whatever pulpit we have, mine, of course, being very literal, and yours perhaps being a bit more metaphorical, but to not lift a finger to change anything. Or maybe when we don't think any action can be taken, or that the action is simply too time-consuming and for other people, and inertia leads us into an acceptance of the status quo. Lucky for us, we can find good company in Elijah and Peter. Neither one of our protagonists this morning have done much good at all, at least in the readings that we have. Elijah can be our patron saint of self-righteousness. Several times we heard this morning, I, even only I, have been faithful to you. And Peter can be our patron saint of doubt. And in light of their failures, I'm ever thankful for John Walton, whose Bible story handbook regularly reminds me that the Bible is not about the humans in the story, but about the God who works around and despite them. And so this isn't a story about Elijah or Peter, but about God, who stands sovereign above the calamity and the storm, and who is not threatened by either. 
Jesus immediately reaches out to Peter to save him from drowning. And Elijah finds out amidst his complaints that his situation is not as dire as he thought. God's reliability was exactly as expected, just not in the way that these people expected. Yahweh's decision not to speak in the earthquake, wind, or fire shows a God who can use the ordinary, not just the spectacular. Elijah believed that he was alone, and yet there were 7,000 others who had not apostatized. When you feel alone, there might be resources where you do not expect them to be. And then God provided another leader to come after Elijah, Elisha. Even though a concern is on your heart, you might not be the person to do the work. And then, to throw another curveball, God wanted Elijah to crown new kings, plural. Not just one in Israel, but one in Damascus as well. That king would actually be a thorn in Israel's side for years. It isn't the first time that God used a non-Israelite to do his work. And perhaps it can remind us that God can, and will, and does, use people that we don't expect. Sometimes people without the prerequisite talents and like in this story, sometimes people outside of his people altogether. This is how our God seems to work. Sometimes in the extraordinary, sometimes in the ordinary, but most often in ways and times that we wouldn't choose. Our first ideas are rarely God's ideas. But the declaration we are called to make is not, Jesus is my co-pilot, but the declaration that Jesus is Lord. And to challenge current political realities, that statement is an offense, as it's designed to deny the statement that Caesar is Lord, or contemporarily, that we are Americans first. Or perhaps that we should all rally together, because remember, we're all still Americans. That doesn't matter, as far as Paul is concerned. Paul rarely says, we're all citizens under the Roman Empire. Let's rally together. Jesus is Lord, and all other allegiances matter next to nothing. It also stands in the way of the declaration that I am Lord of my own life. If I were Lord of my life and others, the way I would choose to act is to jump right into American politics, to work on supporting candidates or challenging candidates that will combat the problem. And maybe that's part of what we're called to do. Maybe it isn't. But it's probably not comprehensive because when one major party seems to be willing to allow and overlook whatever nonsense it has to do to stay in power, and the other party has made it clear that prioritizing unborn lives has no place among them, and that Christianity ought to be sort of discarded on the side in the name of progress, and you can add whatever critiques you want to the list because there are plenty to go around, it's hard to think of where to mobilize. Not to mention that since All Souls is a tax-exempt organization, I can't really tell you which party or candidate to get behind anyway, at least not from the pulpit. Feel free to ask me later. <laughs> so maybe the answer is there. And I think actually part of what we're called to do is to think about the opportunities we have to preach the gospel where we are. And we live in a constitutional republic, in a democracy, in a place where your activity can make a difference. So by all means, make that a part of what you feel called to do and ask God where to do it. But that can't be all that we're called to do. And to figure out what else it is that we need to do, we have to drink deeply from the river of life and pray for guidance from the one who holds all the nations in his hands. Because the answers are not apparent and the answers are not clear. And the answers won't come from us. In Romans 10, which we heard from this morning, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30. And in that passage, 
Moses is telling the people of Israel that the law put in front of them is not too hard for them to reach, that they'd have to bring heaven down or go into the deep to reach it. Paul repurposes it to talk about how God has already done the hard work of justification, and that it doesn't hinge on us. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension had already happened. We don't bring Christ down from heaven, and we don't pull him up from the deep. It's by the will of God, not by our own will or our strength. As one commentator put it, there is no place in Christianity for meritorious pilgrimages. But just because we aren't called to be a bunch of heroes doesn't mean that we are called to be passive or small in our actions or private. In fact, I think our call is to be prophetic and defiant. Elijah had already done some pretty bold and unpopular things. But then he went out to anoint not one but two kings in the region, and at least the one in Israel was meant to supplant a king who was already there. I can't imagine Ahab was thrilled about this coronation. Peter, for all the criticism we might give him for taking his eyes off Jesus and doubting, did for a moment step out of the boat in the midst of a storm and walked on water. And historically speaking, we can take encouragement that there were Christians speaking out, against the Three-Fifths Compromise, the Trail of Tears, the peculiar institution in the Third Reich. And many of them didn't affect change, or they died before their effects could be seen. But I believe they were on the right side of the gospel. There's one thing that prophets all seem to have in common, and that's they don't determine their success of the message in terms of its immediate and visible effects. Success is not measured in terms of efficacy, but in terms of faithfulness to the kingdom. A little over a week ago, I spoke to our group that went on the mission trip of the desperation that we might feel when serving only one week at food pantries and at homeless shelters. Because it feels good to give someone a meal and to feel like you're combating hunger, but everyone we gave a meal to needed another meal later that day or perhaps the next day, the day after that. And it feels good to talk to people who are lonely and who feel cast off by society, but everyone that we talk to at the shelter is probably still homeless and eventually will feel lonely again. They may have been encouraged by our conversation, and I believe they were, and I believe the work we did was good, but they still have an uphill battle ahead of them. All of the ways that the deck is still stacked against them, all the money they would have to raise in order to pull themselves out of the situa situation they're in, that has not changed. But we don't go on these trips because we have all the answers, because one group from, from the western suburbs, you know, and including another small group from West Virginia who joined us, our group together will not suddenly fix homelessness and fix poverty. We do this because that's what the people of God, formed and united through the work of Jesus Christ, do. We do it because that's what the kingdom of heaven looks like, because we read things like the Sermon on the Mount and we're given a vision of what God wants the world to be like or what the world is even though it doesn't seem that way and we live that way. And when we denounce the rhetoric of white nationalists, and by that I of course mean white supremacists, as they occupy public parks while armed like a militia, spray tear gas into counter protesters and shout, we will not be replaced, we reply, as a former All Soulsian posted on Facebook yesterday, the only hope for a white man like me is to be crucified and clothed with the righteousness of a brown man, a Jew from Nazareth. Yes, I will be replaced because nothing else can save me. We say that not because it will necessarily change their minds, but because that is the gospel we have been given to preach. 
The gospel that Paul commends to us in Romans is to declare that anyone who professes that Jesus is Lord is saved, that there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, that all who call upon Jesus are united to him and to one another through him. We see it in Galatians as well, that any hierarchical differences that might exist in the world, real or perceived or made up, are meaningless when seen in the light and the work of God in Christ. The reason we must speak out against the things that were proclaimed yesterday and the night before in Virginia is that at their root, the ideas are antithetical to the good news of Jesus. They are anti-Christ. But even that must be a beginning because it's not uniquely Christian to reject racism. And thankfully, it's not even that brave or countercultural. And if all we do in the church is comply with the world's best ideas for humanity, we're failing to do anything significant at all. If all we are is a ritualistic version of whatever the most contemporary societal norms are for the best vision for humankind, then let's be a YMCA. Let's get rid, let's get rid of all this. We can do that anywhere else without the cross. As Stanley Hauerwas said, Christian ethics make sense not because the principles they espouse make sense in the abstract as perfectly rational behavior, which ought to sound reasonable to any intelligent person. Christian ethics only make sense from the point of view of what we believe has happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And then later he says, Jesus was not crucified for saying or doing what made sense to everyone. When we see evil around us, it is normal and right and good to mourn and feel grief. But when that grief settles in and causes us to despair, it's because we assume that we know on our own how God wants things to be made right and that it should be evident to everyone around us and those methods will ultimately fail. Our model is Jesus, whose most important action was to die a loser's death on the cross, just a when just a week before, he was expected to have a public coronation, who called us to take our own shameful crosses on our backs and die a death of public shame. So what do we do? Maybe one part it is, a, is a desire for transformation, not punishment. If there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, any part of the church that this cancer has crept into has to have it eradicated. We don't desire for our wayward brothers and sisters to continue in this sin. Our job against hateful rhetoric is not to say, good riddance. It's to say, repent. Because we know that God loves everybody, even the people who are preaching a false and anti-Christian gospel, and that God wants them to come back and will pursue them like a lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost son. And like Paul preaching the gospel to the Roman governors who were bent on killing him. And Jesus saying on his cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. The thing that we are called to do is pray for repentance for those who hate. Now let me be clear, this isn't a cheap grace where we say, oh, you said awful, terrible things publicly to intimidate and scare people. That's okay. We must come alongside those who are persecuted and oppressed. Read the Minor Prophets. There's a lot of words there for us. And we must never excuse oppression. But when we do so and are potentially struck for that action, we turn the other cheek loving our enemies. And we say, brother, sister, there is a better way for you. 
You have bought into a lie, and you are living in sin, and it is toxic to your soul. And it is hurting people around you, but it is hurting you as well. Maybe our call is to stand outside of those white nationalist gatherings and hold, repent, Jesus loves you and has a better way for you. Jesus said some pretty crazy things in the Sermon on the Mount. Things that can get you hurt or killed, but isn't that what the gospel demands of us? Doesn't the gospel demand that we stand with those who are hurt and that we tell powerful people who would hurt others, you have no right to do so and God has a better plan for your life? So what do we do? We step forward in faith, fixing our eyes on Jesus, declaring him as Lord, not ourselves and not America or any other empire that would demand our allegiance above Christ. And we reach out to Jesus in the midst of the discouragement, trusting that he is doing what he does on his timeline and in his ways. Maybe it'll be spectacular, and maybe it'll be terribly commonplace. Maybe you'll get to see the 7,000 people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Or maybe like Jonah, you'll get to see the people of Nineveh don sackcloth and ashes and turn to God. Maybe you won't. Maybe what you'll get to do is be like Stephen preaching to the Jews as they stone him. But be encouraged that God is at work. Pray that we would have eyes to see those ways that he is working. And pray that we would have the courage to do what he asks of us. And faith to see him in the storm and to step out of the boat into the waves, knowing that he is there with us and before us. Amen.